Hey, it's Marisa from the Tower Hill production team. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Tower Hill podcast. Whenever or wherever you're listening, we hope this helps you continue to grow in your faith journey. Good morning, Tower Hill Church Online. It's a blessing to be worshiping with you today. I'm Pastor Jason, and we're starting with our second installment of this sermon series called Love in the Age of Outrage. I don't know if you've noticed or not, everybody's angry about everything. You can't talk about anything anymore. It used to be just, you know, religion and politics, and now I I don't know what you can talk about. Everybody is mad. Outrage seems to be the next available emotion, and this is true, yes, even for Christians. In fact, oftentimes it's Christians that are adding fuel to the outrage fire, especially in the last 18 months or during this time of the pandemic. And so what this series is about is trying to figure out what's a better way, because outrage is just driving people away from Jesus. How do we rethink our posture and our strategy in such a way that it is about bringing the love of Jesus Christ to bear in our culture? And I I really appreciate all the comments I got after last week's um, sermon, and and some of you you talked to me in person about how this really hit a nerve for you, how you felt like... um, yeah, you know, you've kind of devolved into outrage a little bit and how you know that that's not probably what God wants. And I shared with you the story last week about how I found myself even doing that because, I don't know, just the, the pressure and the emotional weight of these last 18 months has been really difficult and has caused us to really have a lot of anger and to be quick to outrage. And how do we do this better? How do we make sure that we are better at bringing the love of Christ to a world that so desperately needs it. Yes, even in the midst of the outrage. And so this series, we're kind of having a conversation between Scripture, of course, and this wonderful book on the subject by Ed Stetzer called Christians in the Age of Outrage, How to Bring Our Best When the World is at Its Worst. And it was written in 2018, but I think it really speaks beautifully to this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Because, again, the outrage, I don't think is quote-unquote, winning people to Jesus. We talked about the Starbucks Red Cup controversy last week in 2015 and how Christians just freaked out, you know, cancel Starbucks because they canceled Christmas and all of this, all of this anger and outrage over, in the end, was a secular company, <laughs> right, uh, who never put Merry Christmas on their cups to begin with, was now sort of being accused of hating Jesus because of their product. And, you know, what Stetzer says in the book, I think, is really kind of where we're going with this whole thing. It's the trajectory of the sermon series is we must consider how Christians can defend and contend for the faith, which is important, right, as Paul calls us to do, without devolving into just another one of the voices yelling in outrage. Because once it turns into a shouting match, nobody's listening anymore. And we got to figure out what's a better way. What's a better way to bring the love of Jesus in the middle of the outrage. Stetzer goes on to quote Charles Spurgeon, who is one of the most famous pastors and preachers of his day, who really kind of talked about it in terms of fulfilling our mission that God's called us on, the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says that, that this whole idea of outrage is really about our inability to bring the love of Christ to the people who need it. It's often the people on the other end of our outrage that we're, the, we're supposed to be bringing the love of Christ to it. He sees that as an epic fail 
of the Christian mission. He puts it this way, neglecting our mission is on par with the vilest heresies in the history of the church. Hearts that do not bring Christ to the world prove they do not actually love Christ. Last week, we sort of ended the message by posing a self-reflective question that maybe can help you as you approach the next social media post or the next in-person thing or the next situation that you're confronting that has, that's making you angry or it's sort of full of outrage. How do, you, how do you do it? What's the third way? What's the better way? I mean, you can either do nothing or you could be outraged, but what's the third way? And the question is, am I falling into outrage or am I looking to engage with Christ's love? And maybe just that self-reflective moment before you hit send or before you enter that conversation is enough to help you toward a more faithful response to what's in front of you. Now today I want to kind of talk about this because I think this is really, really true, is that you can't share Christ with a culture that you don't love. What do I mean? Well, I see this in ministry a lot. So you could look at, say, for example, our area, and you could find lots of things wrong. You can find lots of things that you can pick out and say, that's not good, that needs to change. A lot of it maybe has to do around socioeconomic disparity and racism and whatever, country club Christians, so to speak. Uh, Christians who, who maybe come to church and participate in religious life, but maybe they don't live it a whole lot outside of church. I mean, there's lots of things you could pick on in every community in America, every community in the world. But for some people, their animosity for the place that they are ministering to shows. If you don't really love the people that you're trying to communicate with, with the love of Jesus, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It doesn't mean you condone everything that they do, and this is really important. It doesn't mean you condone everything that's happening in your culture, in your community, but it starts from a place of love, not from a place of, I'm going to set you all straight. You can't share Christ with a culture you don't love. I often think of um, the Christian approach to culture usually falls in one of two categories. I love this picture, by the way. <laughs> by the way, I really hope it's fake and uh, Photoshop because that's really scary if they actually found a, a photo crew that was running from a grizzly. But you know, what's that old joke? You, I don't have to outrun a bear. I just have to outrun you. Anyway, I, I feel like the Christian response to what's going on in culture lands in one of two categories. The first would be attack mode. We're the bear, and we are attacking everything that's wrong with culture. And we're going to shake our fist in the air, and we're going to tell them how they're doing everything wrong. And as we said last week, there is such a thing as righteous anger, but most of the time, we're beyond anger into outrage. And it's all about, we are going to attack, we're going to cancel, we're going to do whatever we can to tear you down, to tear you apart, so that we can, quote unquote, defend a Christian worldview or Christian values, or what we perceive to be Christian values. So there's attack mode. And attack mode, you know, it's like the red Starbucks cups. It's not really winning a lot of people to Jesus. Are you standing up for what you believe in? Yes. But the way in which you do it just leaves a bunch of wounded people, a bunch of wounded bodies. And listen, we've all learned the story from Footloose, okay? We've seen Footloose. We know how it goes. <laughs> Doesn't end well. Uh, can't we just all dance? Um, 
Or, or the other category is what I call the retreat method, and that is, well, we're just going to withdraw from culture. We Christians are just going to be our own Christian enclave. And this is sort of like, you see the extreme version of this in like the Amish community, or community that says, I'm going to detach from the world so that we can protect ourselves from its evils. And I liken it to a, a tide going out. It's sort of like, if Christians are the water or the tide that lifts up all the boats, um, we'd rather just leave and let the boats just be as they may, you know, um, grounded. In other words, it's, it's not about what we're contributing to the culture. It's about how do we protect ourselves so that we don't get tainted by the culture. And I think both of these strategies or both of these points of view are mistaken. We also see this in, in, in a different kind of way, but I think, I think it's in the same lane here, where sometimes you see megachurches, and I'm not anti-megachurch, actually, there's a lot of things I love about megachurches, but you see churches that, you know, they have their own coffee shops and bookstores and gyms where people can come and work out, and it's almost like you're taking, you're taking Christian, all the Christians, and you're just putting a bubble around them so they don't have to interact with, with all the non-Christians. And I, don't, I just don't know how you win the world when you're not communicating with the world, when you're trying to completely detach. In but not of the world, I think, is important. Here's the thing. When we attack culture or retreat from culture, it makes it harder to love that culture. And that's when I think we fail the Great Commission. But maybe we got to back up a little and start with, with a beginning question. That is, well, what does God really think about human culture? Like, maybe that should frame how we respond to it. I think this is a fascinating topic. And if you ever want to talk more on this, feel free to, to shoot me an email. But if you go all the way back to creation, the creation narratives in Genesis, and Genesis chapter 2, what's fascinating is, um, theologically speaking, everything that happens before sin, before the fall, before Adam and Eve and the fruit, before all of that, if all of that before was meant to be God's perfect will, God's creative, that's how God wanted things, you could sort of categorize all those things and say those things are good, that God thinks are good. Here's something that comes, that fits that category in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. You know that word cultivate? is where we get the word culture. What is cultivation but the processes and products of human activity? I mean, how long before Adam and Eve figured out how to form a rake and to take care of the garden? It's a tool of cultivation that human culture is actually divinely given. He, God loves human culture. He created us to have this culture to tend the garden, so to speak, to produce things, to make things, to invent things, to, uh, to put our hands to work, to grow things, to, to flourish. Like This is all kind of part of how we are created to be. So you can't say that culture in and of itself is something that God doesn't love because he clearly does. He created us to be people of culture, to work the earth and take care of it. In fact, the gospel has always been inextricably connected with human culture. Why do I say that? Because of John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You see, Jesus 
the Son of God, came to life, not just in theory or in sort of an abstract time and place. He came specifically in a very specific time and place in the world. And he participated in this, quote-unquote, fallen human culture. He went to weddings, and he went to banquets, and he went to religious festivals in Jerusalem, and he uh, made friends in the community. He was a carpenter. I mean, how is that for a symbol of culture building? But to be a carpenter, a builder of elements or products of culture. He came and he spoke a particular language with a particular people. He was a rabbi and in a particular religious system. I mean, God, the incarnation, Jesus Christ, is part of human cultural activity. So if God hated culture, he never would be a part of it. Or if he thought it was just so evil, um, you know, he, he wouldn't be around it. Doesn't mean culture is perfect. Please don't hear me wrong. Culture has lots of sin, a lot of problems in it. But I think... It begins with this foundation that God loves human culture. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Not, not for God so loved all of the religious people. God loved all the people who would one day be followers of him. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You see, God's desire is to redeem that which he created to be good. To redeem human culture that has been broken by sin. So if that's God's perspective, maybe it should be ours too. Like that our job is to love culture in order to help be a part of its redemption, this culture that's been broken by sin. Stetzer says, why have Christian engagement and evangelism declined? I believe one primary reason is that today's church doesn't know how to engage a post-Christian culture. I mean, years ago when you could say that America was really run on Judeo-Christian values, it was just a lot different. And today, since it's really not, we kind of don't know what to do with that. We don't know how to engage it. So that's why it becomes very, uh, a lot of animosity. That's why it becomes like a lot of bear attacks uh, or a lot of tidal retreats rather than a gospel-informed love and engagement with culture because we sort of don't know what to do with that. And I, I understand Right, So I don't think this uh, message is about pointing a finger at that. I, I think it's just pointing it out so that maybe we can consider a better way. He goes on to say, We are not commissioned to retreat into our buildings to form holy huddles and talk about the good old days. Jesus knew he was sending his followers into hostile territory. Nevertheless, he commanded them to go into the world, be fishers of men, and tell people everywhere about him. Maybe a helpful way of framing this is something that we find in Jeremiah 29. Let me set the stage here. God's people had been carried off into exile. They were conquered by the Babylonians and taken into captivity. If you could imagine, like, all of their cultural identity as, as Jewish people, as followers of God, it was all to do with their particular way of life, and all that was gone. And they were thrust into this foreign culture where they had to kind of assimilate And you can imagine how painful that was for them. And yet, in the midst of this exile, there are some surprising words that the prophet Jeremiah hears from God and relays to God's people. This is Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. 
Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. I mean, this is, this is enormously radical. Don't, um, in other words, don't withdraw from the culture that you find yourselves in exile. Don't attack it. Settle down. Become a part of it. Seek the peace and prosperity of this enemy culture, the culture that conquered you. I mean, that is so radical and had to be so hard to hear. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. While certainly this passage is very specific to this cultural moment that God's people found themselves in, I wonder if this theme of exile might be even a helpful way for us to understand how we should engage with the culture around us or how to frame our worldview. That we are God's people with a heavenly home and and we're temporarily not in that home. We are sent on a mission to to the world that often is against the values of that heavenly home. And our job is to what? Is to become a part of it, to engage with it, and hopefully to bring redemption and prosperity and peace in the process. I don't think it's about attacking or retreating. I think there are times when the gospel definitely challenges culture, and we do need to challenge culture in the way of Jesus. And there's a time when the gospel lifts up culture, affirms culture. And that dance, that tension between them, I think, is the way. And it's all led, like we said last week, by love. So what are some things, some principles that we can tease out of Jeremiah 29 and in some of these passages that we've looked at? And I think the first is participate in culture. Make friends. Be involved. Go to the grocery store. Live in the culture. Participate in the culture you are. Hey, they're having a St. Patrick's Day parade. Go be a part of it, right? Engage, Christians. Engage in culture. Make relationships. This is true as a church. We've got to engage. And that's something I would love to see our church do even more than it does. I think, you know, a wonderful example that we have is when we volunteer at the Fireman's Fair. It's a way for us to just engage, to just be helpful to partner with the community and things that they're doing. Participate. 
Then, secondly, work for the peace and prosperity in the culture around us. How do we do that? We get involved. We care about the things people care about. Now, of course, now listen, hopefully I don't need to say this, that if there's something that's just straight up against the values of Jesus Christ, maybe, maybe we are selective about how we choose to participate. But largely, we could find ways to do good in our community, to work for peace and prosperity in the culture around us. And I think if we do that, we got a greater shot of being faithful, of loving people in the age of outrage. But maybe even more important, that people will know that we love them. They'll know that the church is for them and not against them, even in the midst of the changing world around us. I think a fully formed, gospel-centered view of culture is neither attack nor retreat. It's gospel engagement. It's like a, a boat harbor where the tide is in and all the boats are lifted up. I feel like the Christian tide in our community should lift up all boats. That by our good that we do, by the love that we share, people will value the work of Christ church in our communities. I think that's how people are drawn to Jesus. In other words, I think when they see the church in your community as an essential part of it, as, so that even someone who says, you know, I'm not really a church person, I don't know that I ever go, but I'm so glad they're here. To me, that's the cultural win. Right? So when you challenge the culture, it must come from a place of love. They have to know you love them and they're not going to care about anything that you say. And I think, I think maybe another way of asking this is saying, is, is our view of culture about defending a quote-unquote Christian worldview or living a gospel-centered life in community together? I believe it's the latter. So how do you do that? <laughs> right? Because that sounds sort of vague. How do you live, make gospel-centered choices? Well, if the gospel is all about the redeeming love of Jesus Christ, how do I share in that way the redeeming love of Jesus in all of my relationships? It doesn't mean I'm preaching at everybody in my life. I'm demonstrating what it looks like to be the hands and feet of Christ. Again, they will know we are Christians by our love. Ask yourself, in any situation, what is the gospel-centered move? How can I lift up or support or help or teach or protect or bring justice, love or help correct? Don't worry about judgment, okay? Just judgment isn't anything Christians are supposed to be doing anyway. Leave that up to God. He's better at it than you, (laughs) okay? I know, listen, it's easier said than done because it's just kind of a place where we might naturally go. But the point is, how can I with the love of God's grace flowing through me, share that love and grace situationally, relationally, and communally. I'm not sure what that looks like for you or how that hits you today. But maybe, maybe a way of understanding is saying, I think our goal should be that Christians are an integral and celebrated part of the community. And sadly, we're often not. I think once we figure that out, when we love in the age of outrage, well, I think that's when people really see the work of God. Amen.